The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and you are listening to a special weekend edition of The Gist because there were just too many good people to talk to, too many insights to glean, and we didn't want to keep them from you for too long. So here now, 538 polling expert Harry Enten and Princeton professor Julian Zelizer. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. So of all the things we're talking about, I guess fundamentally underlining our missed assumptions were assumptions about the polls. So joining me now is 538's Harry Enten. He is uh, identified as the whiz kid. Actually, senior writer. Is that right? Senior writer? Senior writer? Yeah, that works fine. Yeah, yeah. He's a senior writer. The polls were off, although as I look at the popular vote, how off were, quote unquote, the polls? And not the national polls were actually off by less than they probably were in 2012. Obviously, there's still a lot of votes to be counted out in California. Those should lean heavily towards Clinton. So it looks like we'll end up with a Clinton popular vote victory of probably around or north of a percentage point. And the final aggregate of polls had her up by what, about three to four. Mm -hmm. So maybe an error of two, maybe two and a half, which is actually less than it was four years ago. Of course, last time around, the polls favored Barack Obama and he won. Uh, this time around, a little uh, little change of that. So in general, conventional wisdom is the error that the polls made, and we'll get into why they made this error, but let's just establish our terms. The error was to undercount the Trump support, to undercount the number or amount of uncollege-educated white men, for instance, who would show up for Trump. Is that right? Well, I think the main error is that in the swing state polls or in the state polls themselves, the average error was something along the lines of four percentage points. Maybe it was about 3.3 if you average out instead of taking an absolute error. You know, they were 3.3 percentage points too low on Trump. Um, And you see that across different states of different types of demographics. We see that specifically in states that lean more Republican. So down in the South. Uh, West Virginia, actually, and North Dakota were the states with the two highest errors. And um, those tend to correlate fairly well with, number one, white working class voters, and number two, just Republican leaning in general. Republican voters came home at the end and voted in very large numbers for Trump. Before this even happened, there was a theory of the shy Trump vote, not wanting to tell a pollster that you were voting for Trump. You didn't buy it for a couple of reasons. Now it seems like maybe someone would subscribe to it. But I heard a compelling argument that maybe shy Trump vote isn't the greatest explanation because online polls where there was no human you'd have to talk to, you would see a different result if it was really shy Trump voters who didn't want to admit it to a pollster. And you don't you didn't see that divergence from the in from the person polls or telephone polls to the online polls. Right, exactly. And if the largest error is in a state like West Virginia, why would you be afraid to tell a pollster that you were for Donald Trump in the state of West Virginia? Makes no sense. He ran away with that primary. It was a state that was going to be overwhelmingly pro-Trump. The errors were actually highest in the states where Trump was strongest. So there wouldn't be a reason to lie to pollsters. 
It was some, it, it, in my opinion, look, we always said that the polls could underestimate Trump, but that shy Trump as a theory didn't really make a lot of sense. I, I, I still hold to that. There's some reason that some of those polls underestimated Trump, but I don't think it's that. Maybe it's likely voters. So there are screens when they count someone as a likely voter. And maybe people who said, I'm voting for Trump, were discounted. Although there's an argument with that, which it doesn't seem as if he was getting voters who never voted before, even though he said that's what he was going to do. Sure. That, that, that's, exactly, that's exactly the truth. The first-time voters went more for Clinton than went for Trump. Uh, these were traditional voters. They tended to be older voters. They tended to be voters who turned out very frequently. Uh, one thing I will note, which I think is kind of interesting, and actually a lot of the pre-election polls had this as well, was that Donald Trump did better among African-Americans than Mitt Romney did. Yeah. Which makes which makes some sense, right? If if you're of the belief that people perhaps some people voted for Barack Obama because some black people voted because he was black, which is perfectly acceptable. So that wouldn't be too surprising. But it wouldn't shock me either that perhaps there were some people in the black community who might have been a little fearful to admit that they were going to vote for Trump, given the huge animosity against him and the large part of the African-American population. That's something that goes against that or goes for the shy Trump theory. But there's just a lot there and a lot that we'll have to digest. Also, with the black vote, it was so it was almost uniform for Barack Obama. Wasn't it like 93 percent or something? Uh, yeah. In the exits, I believe it was 93 to six. There were some other yeah. polls that so indicated even a higher percentage. Yeah. So you can't do much better than that. I mean, there's no kind of that argument would be there's no place to go but down with the African-American vote for the Democrats. Sure. But I would argue that probably it cost Hillary Clinton, for instance, the state of Michigan, uh, that she did not get the same numbers with black voters that Barack Obama did. I don't know if there was any possible way that she could have, but, you know, she won the black vote overwhelmingly, but there's a difference between getting, say, close to 90% of, uh, or close, winning black voters by close to, say, 90 percentage points and winning them by, some, say, closer to 80 percentage points. It's a huge win either way, but it, it matters a lot. And then what about the Latino vote? Because uh, within polling communities, the exit polls indicate that Donald Trump did better with Latinos than Mitt Romney did, which is confounding to me. Although some Latino specific pollsters are saying don't trust the exit polls. Well, this has been, you know, if we really want to get into polling nerdum, this has been an argument that's been going on since at least 2004 when the exit poll showed a lot of strength for George uh, W. Bush among Latino voters and groups like or groups that are like, I don't know if Latino decisions was around back in 2004, but groups like that were saying, no, 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 the polls are missed it. But I actually, there's a very interesting thing that you can do. And obviously there are some pro potential problems with uh, looking too much at, say, counties that uh, are heavily Latino. And then you say, okay, how did they change the vote? That's an ecological fallacy potentially where it could mislead you. But if you look at, for instance, a star county in Texas, mm -hmm. which is a, a Latino county there, I believe over 95% of the population there is Latino. And you say Donald Trump only say got about 19% of the Latino vote. Wow, he did really poorly. Yeah, well, Mitt Romney got a little bit less than 15% of the Latino vote in that same exact county. If you look at counties across the board that are overwhelmingly Latino, especially in places like Texas and New Mexico, and you look at certain precincts, whether they be in Florida or even in Milwaukee, what you see is that Donald Trump did not do well in those specific precincts and counties, but he actually did do better than Mitt Romney did. Now, there's some exceptions to that, but across the board, it just seems like Donald Trump did better that Mitt Romney did among Latinos, among African-Americans, and among white voters. So it's, you know, to varying degrees, but it does seem like his numbers were higher than Romney's across the board. 
I think that, I don't know if I could prove this. You probably could. I have just been struck by this idea that the Democrats are called the constituency of the ascendant. And it's true. The uh, number of black and brown people, or sorry, the percent of black and brown people in this country are moving up. And the percent of white people are moving down. And yet, even though those, those graphs are moving in different directions. Just look at the absolute values of each. And I sometimes think that, you know, that old fact about if if Mitt Romney had Mitt Romney got the same percentage ethnically as Reagan did. It's just that the number of each have changed. It's just that they haven't changed so much that it's still not overwhelmingly a white majority country. And I don't know that the people looking at the polls and factoring what Hillary's natural advantages were took the absolute numbers enough into account. The majority of this country is white and the majority of voters is white. And older voters turn out in much higher numbers than younger voters do. And I think that that gets lost. Um, You know, you could the exit polls, if anything, underestimate the percentage of white voters in the electorate. And this has been an argument that has been made, whether by me two years ago or Sean Trenday with his missing white voters theory back in 2012. The name of the game is to get more votes than the other candidate in enough states to win the Electoral College. And it is more than possible to get enough votes by making sure that your numbers are higher with white voters than saying that making sure your numbers are higher with Latinos or black voters. And the fact is that there were a lot of white working class communities in the in the Midwest and in the Northeast. And this was not just the Midwest phenomenon where Donald Trump did significantly better among white voters without a college degree and in counties that had those voters in them than Mitt Romney did. Why would white voters be hard to poll or be hard to capture in exit polls? Or why, of all ethnicities, why would white people be underestimated? Well, it could be any number of things, but I would just point out that sometimes polling errors happen. Yeah. You know, you, 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 not everything needs a perfect explanation. Sometimes your likely voter screen is either too tight or not tight enough, uh, and you just miss certain voters. It could be that there was a last-minute movement towards um, Donald Trump that some of these polls didn't necessarily capture. Remember, this is something I had pointed out before, which is that we had fewer high-quality polls this year than in past years. This was especially true in states like Pennsylvania, states like Michigan. I mean, in Michigan, we were basically relying on a few robo-polls from a pollster that has a D rating from 538. You can't do a lot with that. And we know that polling errors happen, and that's why when we spoke about it, what was it, last week, we had, what, um, Donald Trump is, say, a 35 or 30 percent chance of winning the election. And that made sense based upon the numbers that we had, and it made sense when you looked at previous errors that polling errors like this can happen. It doesn't mean that they will. There's nothing wrong with saying that Hillary Clinton was more likely to win than Donald Trump based upon the polls, but I don't think enough people recognize that. There are polling errors that have happened in the past that would allow Trump to win, and that is what occurred. Are you surprised that the Clinton team, with all its vaunted uh, technology, didn't at least know that the polls in Michigan were inadequate? I know they weren't re- they weren't relying on the robo polls; they did their own, but they didn't go to Michigan, so there was something telling them that things were safe there. I mean, they did go to Michigan right at the very end, yeah, but the real yeah. question I have is, what the heck were they doing in the state of Ohio? Why were they there? What are they doing in these rallies with LeBron James? Not that there's anything wrong with LeBron James, but she lost that state by nearly 10 percentage points. And she's in Ohio what, twice in the final weekend. What, what, what data was coming into them there to suggest that 
she had any shot in Ohio. I think that was perhaps the most shocking thing to me was that she camped out in Ohio and spent instead of spending days in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, she had just won those three states and she barely lost them. This conversation would have been entirely different. Yeah, I'm not sure that Trump had better data. It's uh, he made mistakes into which states he went to and targeted and all that stuff. It's just that his message he was he was winning. Actually, he he didn't even know it, but he was winning. Yeah, I mean, if look, if you speak to um, Trump's pollsters, talk to Adam Geller, who uh, was Christie's pollster, joined the Trump polling team. They knew that the race was closing. They didn't think that. Trump was necessarily going to win. They knew the race was closing, but like, here's a great place that Trump, Trump went to Minnesota. And I think a lot of people are like Minnesota, mm-hmm. what is Trump doing in Minnesota? It's a joke. It wasn't so much of a joke when he barely lost that state. Maybe they had better data than a lot of us thought that he had, or maybe they would just got lucky. But the fact is that his swing state schedule made a lot more sense than Hillary Clinton's swing state schedule at the very end. And maybe he had something going for him that a lot of us didn't give enough credence to. Here's the last thing I want to ask you about. We live in a winner-take-all uh, society, we, and we, our, our our politics are literally winner-take-all. And that leads us to believe that, well, look, the Republicans are now controlling every branch of government. It was a decimation. It was a walloping. But it wasn't. I mean, it was just so very, very close. Um, and I think that you as a pollster can appreciate more than most just how razor thin this was. I am hearing this narrative that, you know, Hillary Clinton had no chance and she wasn't the right candidate and she might not have been the right candidate. But I don't see how you could look at this information and see how close it was in different states, even how we uh, do the election and not say that but for a couple of different breaks here and there or a couple, a few more people in every polling place who decided to vote instead of not vote, we could have a very different result. Absolutely. I think the lesson from this election is the lesson from the last election is the lesson from the election before that. There are no permanent majorities. This is a very divided country. And Donald Trump and the Republican majorities in Congress have two years, two years to show the American people what they're made of. And if the American people don't like it, they will turn them right out in the midterm elections and perhaps turn Trump out four years from now. There is no permanent majority. Things can change. And that, to me, is the key lesson from this campaign versus the last campaign. And we'll see what happens going forward. Harry Anton is a senior political writer and analyst for 538. That is his actual title. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, sir. Julian Zelizer is the professor of uh, history and public affairs at Princeton. He is also the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast. It's a good one. Hello, Professor Zelizer. Hi, thanks for having me. Old line, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. What we're going through today, what does it rhyme with in American history? Well, it rhymes with all the polarized elections that we've had in the last few election cycles where the feelings are very intense and the uh, parties really don't like each other. They don't like the other candidates. And we've seen variations of this, nothing this extreme. Uh, but it's not as if these polarized feelings in the electorate just started in 2016. You could just remember the feelings after the 2000 election, uh, where many Democrats were furious with how everything unfolded. And many Republicans really detested Bill Clinton and couldn't think even of having Al Gore as president. So uh, it it rhymes with all the elections we've had recently, and it's a product of this era. Uh, obviously, the other 
election that comes to mind is 1968, the what if George Wallace had won. And uh, I think a lot of Trump's campaign tapped into some of the themes uh, of Wallace, also of Richard Nixon. Um, And that election was always on my mind as this unfolded. As a fan of history, I've been reading some and people will say, people say, let's go back to the uh, corrupt bargain of John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson or look at Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. And I think their point is our republic survived and those were crises and those were really hardly fought elections. But I would say about them that what an American or what a person expected, first of all, no one expected anything from the black community. You know, in one of those elections, they were mostly slaves. And in another one, they were just taken for granted. The probably the average lifespan was a good three decades worse, shorter than it is now. People just didn't have the expectations of a good life. So I don't know that there's any time where an election would seem to people would plausibly convince people that their life outcome is going to be a appreciably worse, more so than this election did. Well, that's where he's different. So you have many heated or controversial elections. Uh, Certainly, the ones you mentioned uh, were all contested. Uh, They resulted, like with the corrupt bargain, in in decisions about public policy that we are forever reliving. The 2000 election was something everyone who lived through it remembers and has very strong feelings about uh, and why the Supreme Court made the decision that it did. But in this case, I think there is this question of the uh, capacity of the president-elect to actually handle the job. Uh, and on top of that, what kinds of policies he's actually going to promote. I think both were big questions for a lot of the country. Uh, there's fears about what will he do if there was some kind of national security crisis? How would he how, uh, handle the power over the military and over nuclear weapons. Uh, And at the same time, I think there's a lot of concern in parts of the electorate about the kind of campaign he ran. It was a lot of nativism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, some anti-Semitism thrown in. So there's many different parts of the electorate who are literally worried about what comes next, even if he's very capable. Uh, In fact, more worried if he's very capable about what's going to happen. So I do think that's true, and it's a, it's a different kind of emotion that people are having. I think about Andrew Jackson, populist, um, insensitive, even uh, to the even, even as judged against the mores of the time, insensitive to minority needs, and strong, you know, projected strength. But you couldn't say he wasn't qualified. It was governor, and he won battles. But six in ten voters told exit pollsters that they didn't think Trump was qualified to be president, which means definitionally a large portion of, or a significant portion of people who voted for Trump voted for a man who they told pollsters wasn't qualified to be president. I would, I would think that's unprecedented in American history. Yeah, we've had very few presidents with so little experience, uh, certainly in politics. Uh, the ones who had less experience, like Dwight Eisenhower, obviously had extensive military experience. Uh, and even Herbert Hoover, who obviously wasn't very successful, uh, had been in commerce uh, before becoming president. So we really have someone who is in uncharted waters uh, when dealing with politics, and obviously he's starting uh, at at the highest level. But I think the polls you're talking about go beyond experience. Uh, I think there were questions in the campaign, even from supporters, about whether he can handle the job. And part of this comes out of this atmosphere today where sentiment
estimate about Washington is very negative. Distrust of Washington is extremely strong, and some of it is well-deserved. It's not as if Washington works so well. Uh, so I think there was room in parts of the electorate to select someone, even if the supporters are not very sure or actually dubious that they can handle the job. Okay, let's talk about the one lever that Democrats might have, which is a Senate filibuster. But a Senate filibuster is rules-based. It's not constitutional-based. It can go away. Um, They have a calculation to make about when to use the filibuster. Do you use it with Supreme Court appointments? When else? Or even if to use it, because I suppose you could argue that if the Republicans, flush with their power, feel so emboldened, they could just scrap the filibuster on uh, all issues. What do you think the Senate Democrats should do? Well, some, there, there's some people who say that the Democrats need to act more like the Republicans, meaning when they're out of power, the Republicans have no hesitation about using every mechanism available to them to stop the Democrats. And we saw that since 2000. We saw that actually before the 2010 midterms. The Republicans were already using the power of the filibuster to force Obama into compromises on the stimulus bill, on Dodd-Frank and on ACA, uh, even when they had absolutely no power other than the power of the minority. And since 2010, they have practiced obstruction ruthlessly. And I think, frankly, it's a mistake for Democrats to lay down their arms. Uh, they have to go on the assumption that Republicans won't go get, a, get rid of the filibuster, have trouble doing so. And they have to use it. That's how congressional politics works. Uh, you don't put your weapons down uh, when you're in this kind of partisan battle. And that is literally the only check that Democrats are going to have in the next two years and possibly the next four years to really block the Republican agenda. So they need to use it until they can't. Procedurally, can 51 Republican senators strip uh, the Senate of its filibuster provisions? It's unclear. So they couldn't for many years until the nuclear option was used, if you remember that, to yeah. reform uh, the appointment process. And frankly, I've been looking at it. It's, 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 it. Traditionally, the Senate is considered a continuing body, meaning it never ends, unlike the House. So it's always in session, given the elections are staggered. And because of that, traditionally, the minority could filibuster any proposal to reform the rules. So if you wanted to get rid of the filibuster, the minority could filibuster that proposal. And it's an issue of contention whether the nuclear option decision, I think it was in 2013, has created a precedent now for the majority just to get rid of all the rules. It might. And I'm sure many Democrats are thinking of that. Although there's Republicans like Ted Cruz, who I suspect would not be that eager to do it, uh, because they have been very cognizant of what a great tool that is to block legislative progress. So I'm not sure they would get united Republican agreement on this. Rand Paul has also used it, although I don't know if ideologically he, you know, as a libertarian, it seems like a filibuster is the sort of thing that would offend him most of all. It's the it's least theoret- free. Theoretically. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in politics, there's a lot of hypocrisy. And uh, I think that's the case with the filibuster. And to go back, the nuclear option, that, that benefited the Democrats and Harry Reid at the time. Exactly. That was one of the reasons many Democrats didn't want to go down that path. It's the same reason many Republicans might not want to do this now. They do think of what will this be in a few years if, if the composition changes. It's very hard to change the rules. So once you do away with it, uh, getting it back on the books will be difficult. 
Is there anything besides an asterisk and a quirk in the fact that it looks like Hillary Clinton's going to actually win the popular vote? Does that mean anything? Well, it's only the fifth time, if that happens, that that we've had this situation where the victor doesn't win the popular vote. The last time we saw this was in 2000. I don't think it's going to stop Donald Trump from claiming to have a mandate. It doesn't change the outcome of the election. And the fact is that the election, the rules aren't about winning the popular vote. So it's, it's good that that happened if you're a Democrat, but you still lose. I think where they can get some solace is that in these big states like California and New York, she did incredibly well. And all these demographic changes the experts keep talking about, uh, the results of immigration with a growing Latino vote, the uh, uh, growth of the independent single uh, female vote and uh, suburban voters, all of that is actually starting to benefit the Democrats. And, and it helped her in those states, even in states like Texas. Uh, she was able to do much better than before. Uh, in terms of where Democrats were. So there's some signs that you can see that the demographic changes will pay off for where the Democrats have gone. That said, it doesn't make you feel better in the short term. And I think Donald Trump showed that that blue-collar, non-college-educated, non-rural vote is still really important. And the mistake Democrats make is making too much of that popular vote outcome and not looking deeply enough about what went wrong and why their message is not resonating with some really important parts of the electorate. And by the way, we should note that the Electoral College and the Senate acted exactly as they were designed to act, which is to embolden, in fact, elevate the rural vote. The fear was that the city slickers in, you know, Philadelphia, city of whatever, 90,000 at the time of the Constitution, would have too much sway. So that's what the founders wanted. Uh, we're just getting, we're just seeing the results of that. Right. And obviously, we live in a very different period of time today. Uh, so sometimes that might not be the result we want, just to uh, over... Uh, way in some ways that vote rather than, uh, you know, giving some privilege to more populated areas. It, it's, it's a relic in some ways of a period uh, that was very different than today. But that said, it's serving its function. Uh, it does force the candidates to campaign in some states that would probably be ignored. But my guess is you're going to have another round of discussion of should we get rid of the Electoral College, which traditionally is a discussion that goes absolutely nowhere. And the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, undergirding so many of your answers have been, you know, we're so polarized as a country, it's a consequence of that. And yet there does not seem to be a correlation between our polarization and where the candidates actually stand on issues. In other words, we absolutely have party polarization, but what the parties are, are roughly vectors, not for ideas, but for identity. And that's becoming clear to me. I think that's a very fair point, and I think the identity of Trump it, it does reflect some of the identity of the Republican Party, and I think that's what many Republicans are now coming to realize, and many Democrats are coming to realize, that that Republican Party can still do pretty well. Julian Zell is our history professor at Princeton History and Public Policy, Polls and Politics podcast. Oh, he did it with Sam Wang, who was a little bit wrong, said there was a 99% chance. You're going to discuss that on the latest Polls and we Politics? We did. On, on episode 20, we discuss it. And uh, he was right at the center of the, the polling controversy in this election. All right. Check that out. Thank you so much, Julian. Thanks for having me. 
This has been a special edition of Slate's Gist. <laughs>